This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. What drives a teenager to buy a gun and see it as a legitimate way to solve a problem? That's a question sociologist Sudhir Venkatesh tries to answer in his new book, The Tomorrow Game. It follows the story of two rival teens on Chicago's South Side, their race for a gun, and a community that's trying to save them. Sudhir Venkatesh is also a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Columbia University. And he joins us now. Hi, Sudhir. Hi, thank you for inviting me. So you have written several books now on gun violence. This one in particular, it's based on a true story, but you've sort of changed the names of the people who were involved. Why did you take that approach? One reason is that I wanted to protect the identity and just minimize the risk because I often ask a lot of people when they let me into their lives and they share their stories. There's another reason, though, which is that I would like people to not just imagine that these are the the people in this book, but also a number of people in a number of communities in and around Chicago and, and make it feel like a general story that applies to lots of places that are facing these kinds of problems. Yeah. Well, early on in the book, we meet two teenagers, right? Their names are Frank and Marshall. Talk about them. Who are they and what kind of lives have they lived so far? The best word that I can use to describe them is the phrase that Marshall's parents use when they call him an ordinary kid. Yeah. And it's just a it's a word that sends a chill through me because so much of our attention is is wrapped up by looking at the cases and justifiably perhaps of people who are really at the edges and who really need our help people who might be in a drug gang or or they're just dealing a lot of guns and and they're really involved in the criminal justice system but when you look at Marshall who's otherwise he's in school he's going about his life and he too is wrapped up in the possibility of getting a gun and using it to just deal with an emotional conflict with another teenager, you start to realize just how widespread um, the the problem is and the need for our attention is in in these communities. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking as a sociologist, I I wonder how that escalation happens, right? As you, you just sort of described the two teens, what's happening internally to take someone to that level? Where they're like, oh, a gun is going to be my solution here to fix this problem. It starts off as a schoolyard little tussle, a series of name calling, something that happens every day, something that happens in every neighborhood. Yeah. And between Marshall and and Frankie and one of the things that happens today that we didn't see before is that the world of social media just takes over and it becomes a kind of a public sphere for young people. And there's a series of taunts and there's a there's a way in which Marshall feels like the world is watching him and the world meaning just other kids in his neighborhood, egging him on to defend himself. And what looks like a conflict is now a challenge to Marshall where he's in the middle of a large arena. Mm-hmm. Everyone's watching to see whether he can defend his manhood. And, you know, faced with that kind of expectation and pressure, you can kind of understand how the situation gets out of control for some young people. There are some other crucial characters in the book. They're they're part of the community at large, the teens' families, local pastors. Uh, there's a bodega owner, um, gun dealers, the police. Talk about their collective role in this conflict. If the first part of the book is really about Marshall and, and Frankie and their friends and how they get into trouble and how it escalates, the second part is a world that we also don't see, which is all of the people in Chicago neighborhoods that are responding to kids in trouble. 
And often they don't get a lot of attention. These are the the store owners, the pastors, the officers, as you mentioned, the school teachers, who are doing the small things sometimes to just make sure that the situation doesn't get out of control. And what I find really that impresses me and draws my attention is just how much good faith and trust there is we're in a society in which we're so highly polarized and we don't often have a lot of positive feeling about that that social fabric that we're all living in. I think there's a lot there and I found it in this community in the enormous amounts of emotional labor and daily work of people to stop a situation from getting out of hand. I want to read a, a brief excerpt from the book that touches on the title. It's also on the uh, that front flap inside the book. It says, quote, Every man around here is living a tomorrow game. As bad as things are, it's only going to get worse. What's the tomorrow game, Sadir? You know, one of the things I find really sad and ironic about our big public policy debates is that they don't really involve young people. We're thinking about what to do with guns and what to do with violence. And we often fail to really ask young people how they're imagining their circumstances and what they want. One of the things that is strongest for a young person is not just to have a better life in 24 hours, but but that sense of, I need a tomorrow. I need a life where I can dream, aspire. I want to live it out and realize my full potential. And a lot of times what happens in these communities when people feel a hopelessness and they can't make a bet that tomorrow is going to be there in that way, they get wrapped up in their present circumstances. They get anxious and depressed. And that's really what this is about, is drawing attention to the hope and the aspirations that young people have and the cries um, Mm -hmm. of young people. You're listening to Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. That is sociologist Sudhir Venkatesh. We're talking about his new book. It's called The Tomorrow Game. So this is your fourth book that's taking place on the South Side, where you actually spent three decades researching really the toll of poverty and gun violence on on families and communities here. What is it that brought you to Chicago during that time? And and what did your research process look like? What brought me to Chicago initially, as you said, a very long time ago, 30 years ago, was going to graduate school. And I came because I was fascinated as an immigrant with what it meant to live in America. And, you know, if you were to ask people in my cohort of students who came, where would you go to find out uh, a slice of America? And maybe they'd send you to Little Italy. Maybe they'd send you downtown. Very rarely did anyone say, go across the street to the south side, go into Grand Boulevard. And that's where I went. And I really was captivated by these communities because I found just a vibrant part of America that spoke to all the ideals that we that I was taught in school, that sense of civic virtue, of, of, of the power of neighborhood, of, of, of neighborliness. And that's what's drawn me to this community for so long and in this book as well, because despite the fact that it, it needs our attention for the challenges, I think there's a lot of promise there that we have to talk about, because if we don't, we are going to be building our policy and our understanding of communities on a and a kind of a hopeless foundation, whereas I actually feel like there's a lot of hope out there. Yeah. Well, over the years, talk more about the patterns that you've observed when it comes to gun violence in Chicago. Well, one of the things that I think we want to pay attention to is just that there's not a gun violence problem per se in this country. There are different kinds of gun violence problems. So what we might hear of in a school shooting is very, very different than what happens in Chicago. In the community where this, in the South Side, where the book is set, in the month that I told the story, there's 57 shootings 
just a month. That's what the police have recorded, and it's and they you can see it online. You can look at the police data set. That's an extraordinary level of violence. It's not just a random happenstance shooting. It's people who every day have to adjust their patterns and make sure that they're not going to get in the way of gun violence. And so that produces a lot of adaptation, a lot of creativity, a lot of ingenuity. It's not a situation in which there's a foreign element, but it's the people you know. It's the neighbor across the street. It's the kid who's in distress. And that's the portrait I wanted to to give was these aren't strangers in a neighborhood. We might feel like, oh, my gosh, if you could just get rid of the bad people. No, because the, the bad person is your friend's child who needs help as well. I'm so glad you you brought that up. Different kinds of gun violence problems. That's so important to know. Absolutely. And one thing that we should be mindful of is the historical aspect. If you ask Marshall, as I did, why did you go and get a gun? His response is, because that's what you do if you're a man in this neighborhood. That's what my dad did. So I asked his dad, Jay, this is his dad's name, why did you get a gun when you were in trouble? Because that's what you do to be a man, and that's what my uncle did. And you get this sense of a deep history of a community that has largely had to live on its own, the African-American community in Chicago, because they couldn't rely on the mainstream society, the white-dominated institutions. And so you have to respect and, and, and acknowledge the fact that they've had to adapt and they've had to find ways to take care of their own needs because the wider society didn't really come to their aid. I couldn't help but notice that that one of the great reviews that your book has received, it calls you a, quote, street smart sociologist. Is that important to you? You know, keeping your finger on the pulse of what's actually happening in this city without always wearing your, your sociologist hat? The irony of that, and I feel very blessed to be to have that <laughs> in, in, in front of my I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, and most people don't know, and sociology actually started in Chicago, American sociology. It's the birthplace, and it started by people at the University of Chicago and in, in other places sending their students into the neighborhoods to say, hey, go find out what's happening in Little Italy. Italy, excuse me, go find out what's happening in Germantown. So in a sense, I may look like I'm doing something that's radical, or, or but, but I'm just doing what people, social scientists in Chicago have been doing for 100 years, which is that the real meat of the city, the thing that makes the city happen, is what the life on the streets and the life in our communities, and that's what we should be paying attention to. So um, violence... It tends to ramp up in Chicago and other major cities, too. I'm from Toronto, and I remember it being the same thing. Always hearing about the summer of the gun, right? It tends to ramp up during the summer. We recently saw Mayor Lightfoot here in Chicago expand the uh, the citywide youth curfew after a shooting in Millennium Park. Are policies like those effective in addressing gun violence among young people? They can be. Um, I, I think that some of our policies, like curfews, um, which are very reactive, or some of our gun policies that try to limit availability. Um, again, very reactive. You need them. But that's really the start of the conversation. We should acknowledge that those are important, but move past and try to think about what's the ecosystem that people are living in. There's this wonderful researcher in Northwestern, Andrew Papakristos, who studies the networks of people who are involved in gun violence. And you see that everyone, you could start anywhere. You could start with an observer. You could start with a kid in a street gang. There's lots of different kind of people that need our help, and, and we should be mindful of looking at the range of youth and trying to address the different kinds of needs that they have. And and that's why I think as much as I support 
the way that we think about gun availability, you know, you can't get a gun in Chicago, we, so I don't know how much more restrictive the laws are going to be. We also need to have very specific custom approaches for different kinds of kids in different circumstances. So what you write about in this book, in The Tomorrow Game, it's still very much everyday life here in Chicago. What exactly would you say needs to change here? Unfortunately, that's right. It is very much everyday life. I think some of the things that we should do to change the situation are what we would do in our own community. One of the challenges is that we are looking at this community as if it's really, really different. And yes, absolutely. In some ways, it it, it is, as I've described it. But what would we do if it was our neighbor? What would we do if it was our the kids on our street? We would probably react in a different way with a different kind of approach, different level of services, probably get to it much earlier because we would listen. We would listen for the early signs, not the later signs where there's conflict and it's almost too late to intervene, but the early signs of a young person in distress. That's one of the most important things we can make is just to start acknowledging that kids are telling us they need help very early on, and it's our job as adults to listen. You uh, previously directed Integrity Research at Facebook, and you built out Twitter's first social science innovation team. What role does digital technology play when it comes to youth violence? It's staggering the disconnect between a lot of our policy and a lot of our community-based interventions and this world of social media and digital platforms. We've got to we've got to bridge that gap because if you think about it, in this book, I describe how the place where they find the gun is on Facebook. How they broadcast the, their intent to go after somebody else is on Twitter and on Facebook. It's all occurring on social media, and yet, you know, because so many of the people who are in a positions of authority or leading organizations, you know, we're not naturally digital natives. We don't understand that world, and so we've kind of stayed away from it. We have to start embracing an approach that takes really seriously that that's the public sphere mm-hmm. for teenagers. And we've got to find ways, to, just like we did with drunk driving in the friends don't let friends uh, on and on approach. Oh, yeah. We've got yeah. To, yeah, got to be innovating, creative, and use the digital tools to reach the kids because they're there and they'll listen. You'll be at the American Writers Museum to discuss the book tonight. What do you want readers to take away from it? You know, I, I think this is a product of me being a parent, and I wrote this book after I became a parent and had my own children. And what I'd really like readers to think about is if this was in your community, what's the kind of approach that you would you would have? And, and to focus not just on the fact that there's a small group of people who are probably committing some of the worst crimes, absolutely, and we should work, work with them, but also let's look at what the ordinary kids, as Marshall is known in his neighborhood, and the kids who might we might be overlooking at the moment, and to think about what they need, just the rich range of, of, of talent and creativity and, and, and the wonder of youth that exists in these communities and try to build on that optimism. What have you learned from writing this book? You know, I've learned how to be a better parent, I'll tell you, because mm-hmm. you can never listen enough. And you're constantly finding that, I'm constantly finding that my own kids and the kids in my neighborhood are listening to. And once again, I've had the benefit of immersing myself in Chicago Southside. And yes, coming away with some understandings of that community, but also turning that back on myself and really learning a lot about my own family and my own community as well from the strengths that I saw on the Southside. That's author Sadir Venkatesh. 
He's also a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Columbia University. We've been talking about his new book, The Tomorrow Game. Now, you can catch him at the American Writers Museum in Chicago tonight. For more information, visit AmericanWritersMuseum.org. Sudhir, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this conversation. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.